Uh, can I just ask, is everybody able to hear me without the mic, or do you want me to put it on? It's okay? Okay, well, I, as I mentioned earlier, I've always wanted to visit uh, Philippi and had a chance to do so uh, in June this year. I took a couple of photographs, which I thought might be helpful for those who want to see what Philippi looks like today. It was a garrison town. Can we screen up the two images? This is um, archaeologists, apparently, uh, unearthed what they think was possibly the prison in which Paul and Silas were kept um, uh, in the first century when they were uh, imprisoned there. So this is the prison just looking from outside. Um, And uh, this also is the little river, which or stream, which is still there, the river where the first believers... In, uh, in Europe were actually uh, baptized. I remember the story in Acts chapter 16 of how um, there was a seller of purple, uh, the young girl caught up in uh, sort of demonic possession, and the Philippian jailer were all converted uh, there as a result of Paul and Silas's ministry. And this is the stream in which they were, uh, they were baptized. In fact, I've got a, um, about a 30-second image of that with the rushing stream, if you want to watch it on my phone afterwards. And I was with a group of about 40 evangelists from around the Balkans, three of whom were Macedonians. Philippi is in Macedonia. And uh, today there are probably not more than 2,000 believers in Macedonia, but three of them were there, and they work as evangelists in the student world. And uh, I took a photograph of them, and then they prayed that God would do it again in Macedonia and through the Balkans. If anybody wants to see that on a little uh, screen on a phone afterwards, I'd be happy to show it to you. But that's a couple of images of Philippi, and it shows that the scriptures are rooted in history, that these things did actually occur that are recorded uh, in scripture. So that's one reason that I wanted to look at this, uh, at this passage this morning, The other is because I've come across a lot of Christians in the last year who really are very discouraged, Uh, some who are uh, drifting, and uh, some are downcast because of the particular problems or difficulties they have in life. One friend who's uh, experiencing illness over the last five years said to me, it's really challenging my faith. I'm wondering where God is and why he doesn't deliver me from this illness or this uh, sickness. And I think there are some indicators here as to how Paul helped, or how God helps people uh, in the midst of distress and difficulties from Paul's letter to the Philippians, because as I mentioned, he's in prison himself, of course, and he never gets released. He actually dies there. And um, uh, it's quite striking how Paul is able to rejoice in prison, even in the midst of his difficulties. So I've been wondering, therefore, about the theme of joy and how it is that Paul was able to rejoice in these most adverse of circumstances. And uh, therefore, how uh, any lessons there might be for us in terms of rejoicing today. The other reason I think it's interesting to look at the passage is that if you were to go out to the man or the woman in the street and ask them, when you think of the Christian church, can you just give me the first 10 words that came into your mind to describe what the Christian experience is like? 
I'd be pretty much certain that very few unbelievers in London would use the word joy to describe the experience of many Christians in churches. And yet in the New Testament, it's referred to as one of the fruit of the Holy Spirit uh, in our lives. And it seems to be a cardinal distinctive feature of the corporate body of God's people and of individual Christians. So if that's the case and many Christians have lost their joy or it's diminished for some reason, what can we learn from Paul as we seek to refine it, as it were? I'd like to suggest there are many uh, there are many indicators, but I'd just like to pick up three sources of Paul's joy uh, in his letter to the Philippians. And we're starting backwards from, in chapter 4, you have this verse where it says, Rejoice in the Lord, and in case they hadn't heard it, and again I say to you, rejoice. I'd like to suggest three things that might be helpful to us if perhaps our joy is diminished, or if we are drifting, or if we're in the midst of struggles and adversity, what, are, what can we learn from Paul's example? Well, uh, strangely, uh, I would like to say that the three things that are highlighted in these passages we read are the three things which cause Paul to rejoice are firstly, the Lord's people, secondly, the Lord's purposes, and thirdly, the Lord Jesus and his work. So firstly, the Lord's people. And this is a little bit of a surprise because when you, when you talk with most people in society, often they will brand the church as just full of hypocrites. Or they will talk of the church being boring. But Paul never, ever used these terms to describe the church of Jesus Christ. Look at some of the things that he mentions. He, he uses a Greek word which is known as koinonia, which basically means partnership or fellowship in the gospel. That's in Philippians chapter 1, verse 5. Let me read that text so you might want to reflect on it later. I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel. And what Paul talks about here is a common belief in the gospel, first of all, partnership in the gospel. Then a common experience. In chapter 1, verse 8, he talks about all of you sharing in God's grace. And then the third dimension to their koinonia, or partnership, is a common passion, the advance of the gospel, which we read from verses 12 uh, onwards in this first chapter. And so Paul talks about his partnership in the gospel with other believers as being a source of joy. Then he picks up in various verses right through the letter uh, his approach to these believers. In chapter 1, verse 26, he says... um, Let's read that. Stand firm in one spirit, contending with one man for the faith of the gospel without being frightened in any way. It's been granted uh, to you on behalf of Christ not only to believe on him but also to suffer for him. And in that context, he talks about longing for these believers with the affection of Christ. He talks about longing to be with them and that his joy will overflow when he's with them in verses 26 uh, onwards. He talks about his joy being complete by them being like-minded in chapter 2, verse 2. And again, as we come pick it up in chapter 4, verses 1 and 2, he talks about 
them being his joy and crown. Now he's speaking about the early church here, that, that they were a great source of joy because of their common experience and their common trust in Christ. And he picks out a couple of illustrations of individuals who were a source of joy to him. In chapter 2, verse 20, he refers to Timothy. He says, there's no one else like him. He served me. He had a genuine interest in Paul's welfare. And we'll hear a little bit about timid Timothy this evening. Then in verse 25 of chapter 2, he talks about Epaphrodites, a fellow worker, a soldier, a messenger, who took care of my needs and nearly died, but God spared him and showed mercy on me as a consequence. So there are two believers listed in chapter 2 who are an expression of the source of Paul's joy. He returns to it in chapter 4, in these first three verses of chapter 4, where he alludes to these two women, Euodia and Syntyche. Now, Syntyche means yoke fellow or fellow worker, actually. So you can see what Paul thinks of her in her name. And uh, various commentators have commented on this little, uh, these three verses about these two women who had fallen out. And some have tended to misinterpret it as, oh, these were just two silly, bickering women who just started arguing and fell out together. But Paul never talks, to them, talks about them in that sense in chapter 4, verses 1 to 3. He says they are fellow laborers or yoke fellows in verse 3. And they have contended at his side in the cause of the gospel, alongside other fellow workers. And then he says, get them to come together because their names are written in the book of life. In other words, they're going to live forever in heaven. So you might as well try to encourage them to work together and live together now. So he never says anything negative about them. He doesn't rebuke them, notice, uh, in these few verses, which fits in with Paul's very high view of women who are partners in the gospel which you see elsewhere. Paul has often got a bad bad press. Some people accuse him of misogyny, having a bad view or a negative view of women. But actually, if you read Romans chapter 16, he refers to many female co-workers there. He, in fact, uses one Greek word he never uses of any men in the New Testament. He uses it to refer to Persis in Romans 16 and one other female worker elsewhere. It's the Greek word kopos, which means hard-working and persevering. Never refers to a man in those, in those terms. Only female co-workers. So here Paul illustrates Epaphrodites, Timothy, the two women in chapter 4, who were fellow workers and were a source of joy because of their partnership in the gospel. Now the lesson from that for us is that we should ask the question, as I look around this congregation... And as I think of believers who have worshipped here before, who maybe have gone on to heaven, or believers I know of elsewhere, can I turn aside and thank God that they were a source of joy in my Christian life? My joy and my crown. I was thinking of someone, Sonia, and I know who passed away last year, Elinda Thomas, uh, who was in our church in uh, Highfields in Cardiff. I remember every time I preached, (laughs) it's quite a full church, but she used to sit right in the middle You couldn't miss her, actually, under the clock, I think. And she would be smiling all the way through, as if to say, Lindsay, even if you've made some mistakes in the sermon, I'm here to encourage you. Now, it's wonderful, Paul could tell you this too, for any pastor and preacher to be in a congregation where you sense that the congregation are with you as you're seeking to encourage, 
exhort, challenge, teach his people. Well, think of others in your congregation here, some who have gone to heaven in recent years, some who are here now who are a source of joy to you. Go and thank them while they're still alive. Because often we, we offer eulogies after people have gone to heaven. Thank them now. It's the same with parents. It's important to thank them now. Be thankful to God that you've got some believers here over 60 years of age. I was doing a mission in Cambridge University last year with Michael Green, who was only 87 at the time. He died earlier this year. And a friend of ours who's an evangelist, he's a pastor in Bosnia. He was a member of the Mafia, became a Christian there 20-odd years ago. He's a pastor in the church now, so watch out where some pastors come from. And uh, he's about six foot three, a giant of a guy. And uh, he came to join us in this mission, and he shared his testimony in Cambridge. We were staying in a house together, and as we were walking to the morning prayer meeting one morning, he said, Lindsay, you know why you've come this week, don't you? He's 49 years of age now. He said, I've come to share my testimony with the students. But he said, I've also come to be with you and with Michael. I said, why is that, Slavko? He said, I don't have anybody over 50 years of age in my country who is a mature Christian. The four main churches in the capital were all started after 1994. What's that last 25 years? When most of us who are now pastors were converted. He said, thank God for all the older brothers and sisters you know who have enriched your life. It was a rebuke to me. Because sometimes we can mistakenly look at older folks as if they're in the twilight years, not so much to contribute. And often they feel that way themselves. When was the last time you encouraged a believer in this church over 75 years of age for persevering and trusting the Lord all through the various challenges of life? If you haven't, please do it today after the service. Don't just go and talk to the people you know or that you talk to every Sunday morning. Take time out to go out to an older believer and say, thank you for being faithful and continuing on. Now, when my wife and I were living in Paris as young missionaries in our late 20s and early 30s, we had two children. One of them, our daughter, died when she was a small girl and went to heaven. We were actually back in Cardiff at the time, and it was a providence or a kindness of God that she was born. We'd stay there for a period of time because my father-in-law had a, had a stroke. We thought we'd better be around in case something else happens because my wife was an only child, no other family members there. Then our daughter was born. It was a surprise when she was born with a severe handicap from which she eventually uh, died. But the providence of God was that the, the, the professor of child health in Cardiff in the university hospital and the senior consultant were both members of our church. One was an elder, Professor Peter Gray, one of the top pediatricians in Britain. The other was Corrie Weaver, a single lady who used to send out my prayer letters, even though she was a consultant in the hospital. And it was a strange providence that even though we heard our daughter was gravely ill, we had these two believers who were empathetic, working in the health service, who were also involved in our church, who were a source of comfort. Then I remember people coming to our door, especially older believers, knocking on the door. One couple, Adrian and Edwina. And when we opened the door, they just said, we come to say we're sorry. They didn't yet say anything else, because I knew, knew that they had had a handicapped son who was in his 30s. They understood exactly. Sometimes we don't need pat answers. But the reality of having those older believers who had been through different phases in life, where they'd experienced adversity, was a comfort to us. It didn't eradicate the pain, but it reduced its power 
to know that we were not alone. These were God's gifts to us. I remember one of the elders in the church. This is why we joined the church. Because in the church in Paris, we were amongst the oldest people at 30 years of age. But when we came back to Cardiff, I said to my wife, we need to be in a church with older people where there are godly men and women who have survived for 40, 50 years uh, because of what's happened to us. We joined this church. It was much smaller then, about 70 people. One of the elders came around. We prayed for the elders uh, that they would pray that God would heal our daughter, which I don't think they'd ever prayed for before. And they were a bit petrified coming from a Presbyterian background. Anyway, they came around to see me, and one of the elders said to me, Lindsay, we'll pray for your daughter on one condition. That if God chooses to uh, end her life, you will not be bitter towards God. I thought, what a courageous elder to tell a young couple with a handicapped child, we're happy to pray and we believe God can heal and sometimes does. Sometimes we don't know why in his mysterious providence he chooses not to. If he chooses not to, will you promise to trust him and not become embittered? Very important if we're experiencing difficulties. Then I remember once when I I went to visit the great preacher, Martin Lloyd-Jones, and uh, asked him if I should go to theological college. I was in my last year in university. Uh, He surprised me by saying no. He said, what you need to do is keep up your reading. Find an older believer you can discuss what you're reading with. Because he said, what happens with a lot of preachers is they stop reading. He said, you can tell straight away because they repeat the same illustrations. Maybe you're thinking the same thing as I'm speaking this morning. I don't know. But anyway, he said, there's a man in Wales uh, I think you should meet up with and uh, discuss with him once a month what you're reading. His name is Fielder, he said. Geraint Fielder. Have you heard of him? No, I hadn't. He said, go and find him. He's a very different temperament to you. He's an up and downer. I had a very even temperament. I met with him for 35 years, once every two months, in a, in a car park in an old castle castle where Henry VIII was raised, actually. Henry VII was raised, um, Raglan. And it was a great encouragement. Well, are there any believers like that in the congregation that you go to for encouragement and for challenge? That is one of God's gifts to us. Uh, One of the ways in which he encourages his people, the church. So often the church gets a terrible press. But according to Paul, Uh, The company of God's people, whom he calls saints, were his joy and crown. Now, let me ask you, is that your experience, and is it your conviction? Sometimes it's not the experience, but if it's not, we are responsible to make it our experience by actually initiating ministry to others and a ministry of encouragement. Ask ourselves at the end of each day, did I encourage anyone today with a word from scripture or elsewhere or am I like a sponge who is always waiting for somebody to minister to me you know when we minister to others and offer a word of encouragement that gives us perspective Paul is in prison here he's not glumly saying oh I've got a terrible life I'm going to die here he's writing a letter of encouragement out of a prison where he knows he's going to die Uh, to these saints in the first century who were struggling with the loss of the apostle in their lives. Anyway, that's the first way that God gives us joy in our lives. And it may be joy has been lost because we're too isolated. Charles Wesley once said, the Bible knows nothing of solitary religion. If you do not have fellowship, you must make it. And that's one of the purposes of the church. It's the community of God's people given to corporately worship God and to encourage one another. Question 
Are you doing so? Are you receiving encouragement? Are you offering encouragement? It will materially transform the nature of the church. If God's people focused much more on offering words of encouragement to other believers rather than just waiting for others to minister to them. It's totally transformative. One last illustration in this respect. My parents became believers in their mid-60s, actually as a result of our daughter's death. And uh, my mother died three years later. And she had a temperament like that, very even. My father said he never saw her depressed in 40 years. But, oh boy, he was like that. A good day was if he was only depressed twice a day. And when my mother died of uh, brain cancer, my brother and I were very worried about my father. We thought, will he commit suicide? Because he was hopeless without her. And then on the day of the funeral, I said to him, what are you going to do now, Dad? He said, I'm going to live as if your mother was still here. I thought this was a bit strange. I said, what do you mean as if she was still here? He said, if your mother was here, I know what she'd tell me. She'd say, Joe, go and serve other people. And he said, that's what I'm going to do, which is what he did for 20 years. So he started running minibuses all over Wales of 15, 17 people once a month. He'd phone me up sometimes the day before. He'd say, what are you doing tomorrow, boy? I said, I've got a lot of work to do, Dad. Couldn't ride the minibus for us, could you? I'm over 80. They won't let me drive it anymore. And I said, well, what time are I going to be there, Dad? Can you get here? 7 o'clock in the morning. They're early risers. We'll have you home by 11 o'clock at night. It's okay. I was exhausted by their energy. Anyway, uh, he only had Sunday lunch three times in 20 years after my mother died because they were queuing up, reciprocating his service by inviting him for lunch. Mostly... Uh, ladies who'd lost their first husband. And uh, they seemed to enjoy his company because he was encouraging them. But anyway, that's aside. So when you serve and reach out to others and encourage them, often it rebounds on you. The second thing, though, that Paul says in terms of the source of his joy was absolute confidence in God's sovereignty and providential care. And we heard something of it in that hymn, God Moves in a Mysterious Way. I quoted it. And he highlights this in three sections of Philippians chapter 1. These believers are clearly worried about the future. It's a young church. The great apostle is taking out the way, and they're asking, what's going to happen to us? What's going to happen to the church? What's going to happen to Paul? Paul answers all three things in chapter 1. Firstly, he says, uh, God is sovereignly in control of your lives, because he says in verse 6 of chapter 1, I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. God will complete the work he has begun in you. Or as one Australian commentator has translated that text in a modern translation, Handley Mool, his name was, um, I'm sure that God will put, he says, the finishing touches to the work he's begun in you. And then he reminds them of God's goodness and care. And it has echoes of a verse I quoted when I prayed earlier from 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 22, one of my, one of my favorite verses, which, where God says, The Lord will not abandon you because his own honor is at stake. You just remember that if you're feeling abandoned. Or if you feel all you can see is the back of God. The problem for many believers and human beings is that we think short-term. But the Bible talks about the sovereignty of God over, over history, as well as the direction of our lives. I remember hearing a Russian physicist when I was in university, he was a believer, speak about what he called God's cosmic perspective. And he spelled that out. He said, you and I, when some problem comes into our lives, ask, how is this going to affect us today? 
or I've broken a leg or I've had an injury or something. I can't do what I intended to do for the next day or weeks or months. But he said, God is thinking, seeing things in the long term, in terms of how this will equip us to minister to others, how it will equip us to become more like Christ and servants uh, of the Lord. And paradoxically, often when we experience adversity, God often turns this to the advance of the gospel. I always remember in our case, when our daughter died, being in Paris, and this big guy, about six foot four, came to see me. He had just lost a daughter. He wasn't a Christian. He was a rugby player, I think. He was a giant of a guy. And he said, uh, we've never met. He said, I'm, I'm not a Christian, but I've heard about you. And he said, I've just lost my daughter, and I thought you would understand. I've come to ask for your help. He said, I need to know an answer to the question, will the pain ever go away? He said, I'm a big guy. I've never been afraid of men or anything in life, and I couldn't protect my daughter. She's gone. And he said, I feel desperate. Where can I get help? So I was able to share the gospel with him. And the fact that God's providential care and sovereignty doesn't eradicate pain in this life, but it ameliorates or reduces its potency as he gives us his grace through the promises of Scripture, the companionship of God's people, and the comfort of the Holy Spirit. All these graces sustain us in the midst of difficulties. So Paul here says to the believers that God will complete or put the finishing touches to the work he's begun in you. And that's why it's important not just to be swayed by our emotions up and down, but look at the objective promises of God in terms of our salvation and our provision through God's help. Secondly, they worried about the future of the gospel in verses 12 to 18. The apostles in prison and they're asking, what's going to happen now? There's no great leader, as it were, the apostle or the senior pastor has been taken out of the way. How will we survive? Paul says in verses 12 and following, actually it's turned out to the advance of the gospel because through me the imperial guard has heard about the gospel. And then most of the brothers in verse 14 have become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment and are more bold to speak the word without fear. This came home to me some years ago when I was in a conference in South Africa. I met some Nepali believers there. Now, the first missionaries went to Nepal in 1954, around about the time I was born, I think. And uh, it was quite a while before the first person was converted. But by 1991, there were about 30,000 believers in Nepal. In, in 2010, there were a lot more. They'd experienced revival in the church. And uh, I thought the number was about 300,000. It had grown 10 times in 15 years. So I asked these Nepali believers in the conference, uh, I said, I'm telling people that the church has grown from 30,000 to 300,000 in 20 years. Am I accurate? They said, no, you can triple that, Lindsay. There are about 900,000 of us. I said, well, how do you explain it? They said, well, all the pastors were imprisoned in 1991. So the believers started sharing the gospel. And that's how the church grew. And then they said, and then we decided we would open the doors and the windows and just sing. And as we sang praises, people came in off the street and were converted. Now, that's what you call revival. It doesn't happen that often. But that's what was happening in their situation. As people heard the praises of God's people, they came in off the streets, not everywhere in Nepal, but in certain places, revival broke out and the church grew. So that even when the pastors were imprisoned, the gospel advanced in that situation. Next week, I'm going to meet senior leaders in the church in China. They meet once a year with a few outside observers 
to ask for advice about the kind of challenges they're facing. It's very tough in China at the moment. And last year I said to them, they were all converted in 1991 and afterwards as a result of the Tiananmen Square massacre. When confidence in the communist system fell, many students who had been learning English as a foreign language with foreign language teachers, 80% of whom were believers, and reading Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress and the Scriptures, many were converted, and they said nearly all the key leaders in China at the moment are between 45 and 50 years of age, all converted 1991 to 94. And um, I said, how has the church grown? They said, well, there were a few hundred thousand in the 1980s. We think there are at least 50 million believers in the country at the moment, maybe 75 million. As the church has grown and spread, even as a result of or in the midst of the trauma of the early 1990s. God turned to good the terrible things that happened in the culture so that the gospel could be advanced in our day. I was just reading last night in bed, or this morning, I can't remember which of the two it was, this newsletter from uh, um, uh, the Iranian Christian Ministry, which has its base here in London, uh, Elam Ministries, about this missionary I'd heard the quotation, but I didn't know who it was. 1869, Robert Bruce left Scotland for Iran. He saw almost no response to the gospel throughout his ministry. But in a letter he wrote to his supporters, showed that he understood the season he was in. He said, I'm not reaping the harvest. I scarcely claim to be sowing the seed. I'm hardly plowing the ground, but I'm gathering out the stones so others can come afterwards. Today, the church in Iran is one of the two fastest growing in the world. Hundred years later, I was reading one of the the journals of a missionary from the London Missionary Society the other day, who went to Mongolia in the 1860s and 70s. He spent 20 years there. Didn't see one person converted, but near uh, the time of his death, he said, um, "I haven't seen any conversions, but I do believe God is at work. I'm praying for the church to come into existence, and in His time." I believe a church will be born in Mongolia. Well, in 1990, 100 years later, there were six known believers in Mongolia. I'd met three of them. They were converted while studying in Eastern Europe. Uh, today, Mongolia has at least 150 churches, and per head of population, it's sending out more missionaries than any other country in the world in the last 25 years. It's amazing what's happened there. So that man's prayers were answered 100 years afterwards. That's why it's important we understand God's sovereign purposes over the range of history. We don't always understand why he's allowing some things to happen at a specific time, but we must trust that behind an apparently frowning providence, God's Holy Spirit is at work and will bring things to completion. And our role is to trust him that he will do the work of building his church and bringing glory to his name. Now, I could mention more illustrations of that from uh, Ukraine, from Egypt, the Middle East recently. I don't have time. If you want to ask, come and ask in the question and answer session over lunchtime. But as a lady who's got a handicapped daughter said to me a few weeks ago in our church, I was very angry and bitter at first when my daughter fell into sickness. This, she said, was 15 years ago. And it's hard to understand. But she said, I'm learning to take a long view of God's activity in history. And that was the key. I'm learning to trust him that he will bring about his purposes over the long haul. 
And the key thing here is that, uh, or the third thing then is, Paul's future was secure. For in verse 21 he says, for me to live is Christ, to die is gain. He uses the aorist tense there to describe to live is Christ, to die is gain. The aorist tense in Greek always implies immediacy. So what he's talking about, for me to live is Christ, to die and be with him immediately uh, is gain. So what Paul is saying is, my future is secure, not necessarily in this life, but in heaven. That's a very important distinction. Because often believers get into difficulty when they start to think, God has not answered my prayer specifically in delivering me from this problem, and therefore, can I trust him? My faith is in danger. Whereas most of the promises given to us in the Scripture relate to heaven, and they relate to the fact that God promises to be with us in the here and now, in the midst of a fallen and a broken world, but that our long-term future is secure. Now, today, there's a terrible heresy called prosperity theology. You may have heard it in other churches. I don't think you'll hear it here, but it's common in Latin America. It's all through Africa. It's affecting many churches in the UK and in Eastern Europe. Let me tell you how it goes. If you're a really super saint and you've got an illness or a sickness, you pray and it should be done for you. And it's over. Victory and complete healing. Or also that God will prosper you and uh, he'll provide you with all the things that you want, not just need. Now, there are elements of truth in those things. I believe God does heal. God does raise people up from sickness. But it's less common, honestly, than many people realize. And often, his purpose is to strengthen our testimony in the midst of adversity. Often in the history of the church, how we respond to suffering and adversity is a powerful testimony before the watching world. It's what influenced my father to become a Christian after seeing our daughter die and realizing that we had hope in the midst of adversity. And I said, why are you, why are you becoming a Christian now, Dad? He said, well, son, I've met many people who said they were Christians in business over the last 20 years, but they were fakes. But you can't fake hope in the midst of adversity. You've either got it because of some rock-solid conviction Oh, you haven't. And you've got hope in the midst of adversity. You still have pain, he said, but you have hope and your mother and I want it. John Wimber, the great American charismatic preacher at the end of his life when he was dying of cancer at 61, he'd been involved in remarkable healings, but he prayed for God to heal him and God didn't. He said, I've come to realize at the end of my life, I must have hurt a lot of believers because I gave them the impression they were always going to be healed. And he said, I've prayed for God to heal me. He's chosen not to. I still believe God can heal. But he said, what I've come to realize is that um, our fire often shines brightest or the star shines brightest in the desert, in the midst of difficulty. God often does prosper his people as their lives get cleaned up when they become believers. But I remember asking John Stott, the famous Anglican preacher, what do you think is wrong with prosperity theology? He said two things for those who want to reflect on it. One is um, an inadequate theology of suffering without the failure to understand that sometimes God allows us to go through adversity so we can minister to others and even be refined. Secondly, he said um, an inadequate eschatology, by which he meant 
the theology of the end times, that most of the promises given to us relate to life beyond the grave. And so Paul is saying here, my future, your future is secure, the future advance of the gospel is secure, and my future is secure because God is sovereign on his throne and he providentially cares for us. There was a famous book written many years ago when I was a student called From Prison to Praise by a guy called Colonel Carruthers. And he tried to argue that when you go through adversity, you've just got to praise God for this difficulty or for this sickness, then you'll break through. That's not what the Bible teaches. Very careful distinction. What the Bible tells us, Paul writes about it in 1 Thessalonians 5, he says, rejoice in the Lord in everything give thanks, not for everything. So when my mother was dying of brain cancer or my daughter died of uh, something which affected her nervous system, am I called to give thanks for their death? No. What the Bible tells us is we give thanks to God in the midst of the adversity that we're not left without comfort, that we're not let alo- left alone, but that he's with us. I remember one girl in Southampton University coming to me and saying, my mother's died three months ago, and some of the leaders in my church have told me, we're to come to the point where you can thank God for your mother's death and you'll break through. I said, I'm sorry, your elders are talking nonsense there. Um, God doesn't ask you to give thanks for your mother's death, but what he does call us to do is, in the midst of the loss, give him thanks that we are not without comfort and without hope. But through his grace, he gives us the scriptures. He gives us the hope of heaven. He gives us the companionship of God's people. All these things temper our experience of loss and adversity. So that's the second thing, the sovereignty of God. I must come to a conclusion shortly. But the third and the last thing, which of course is the most important, is not just the people of God are a source of joy for him, or the purposes of God and the advance of the gospel, but the work of God in Christ. And we see that in this what were the beginnings of a hymn in chapter 2, verses 5 to 11, where Paul is focusing uh, his, his gaze on the person and the work of Christ. And he focuses on who Christ was and what he had done. First of all, he says, have this mind in you which was also in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, in other word, words, the Greek says, having the same essence of God. He was God of very God. He came into this world and showed us what God was like. So many people say to me in student evangelism, I can't believe in a God because no one's ever seen God. No one knows what he looks like. But what the New Testament teaches us is that in his incarnation, coming into the world, Jesus showed us what God is like. So the way he treated women, the dispossessed, the way he reached out to the poor, those who were broken and sick, Those are the very actions of God. When Jesus speaks, those are the very words of God. So he was God incarnate come to show us what God was like. The same essence of God. But it's not just who he was, it's what he did. The next few verses show us four or five steps of humility. Found in the form of a slave or the form of a servant. Taken on the likeness of men. That's, That's two steps down. Step down one is the form of a slave or the nature of a servant. Step two is the likeness of a man. Step three is obedient unto death. Step four is the death on the cross, the accursed death of the first century. 
Now, commenting on this when some people ask, well, was Jesus only was Jesus giving up part of what it meant to be God, giving up some of his deity when he came down? John Calvin says, Christ did not divest himself of his deity, but he kept it concealed. And the key question he says we must ask is not um, from what did he divest himself, but into what did he, did he pour himself? And he poured himself into the life and likeness of a man so he could die a substitutionary death on our cross, on the cross, and rise again to give us hope. Let me give a few illustrations of this before I close. There's a great Welsh poet called R.S. Thomas who died a few years ago. Actually, he was a rather depressive uh, character. I don't like a lot of his poetry, but he did write something very interesting called The Coming. Has anybody heard about that? R.S. Thomas's poem, The Coming. And it's not totally correct theology, but he envisages this. There's a conversation in heaven between God the Father and God the Son. And they're looking down on the world. And the world, they can see everybody's running around like lemmings, just running to and forth and not having any clear sense of where they are, who they are in life, what the purpose of life is, what's going to happen to them. Rather like today in Britain, many people just frazzled. And the Father and the Son look down, and the Spirit look down on the world and see this happening. And then they see these three trees on a hillside, which clearly are emblematic of the three crosses. And the Father says to the Son, in R.S. Thomas's words, what should we do? And the, father sa- the son says to the father, let me go. Let me go to them and deal with the problem of sin. Die on the cross, open up the way for them to be reconciled to the triune God who has created them. R.S. Thomas is trying to communicate something of what Paul says in Philippians here about the son who had the essence of God coming into the world, being obedient unto death for our salvation. I've just put up a few images to close our paintings because sometimes people can see these things in written form, sometimes in poetry, sometimes in paintings. I can't see this so clearly, but this is the Rembrandt, which is in the National Gallery here in London, and it's about the incarnation, the coming of Christ, having the same essence of God into the world, Rembrandt is going to be an exhibition of his work in Dulwich Gallery soon. But this one is in central London. And if you can look at the image more carefully afterwards, you can see Rembrandt's use of light focusing on the child who is born. And in the background, I'm afraid you can't quite see it, there's a rafter uh, in the barn, as it were, and it's in the shape of a cross. And what Rembrandt is trying to communicate is the reason this child came into the world was in the shadow of the cross. As Jesus said himself, he came to die for our sins. Who says that of themselves? So Rembrandt is trying to communicate something of what Paul was writing about in Philippians chapter 2. And then the second image, this is actually taken from the church in Wittenberg where Martin Luther pinned his 95 theses challenging the Roman Catholic doctrine. And it's by uh, the great painter who... Um, worked with Rembrandt called Cranach, Protestant painter. And um, in this image on the right-hand side, this is actually above the altar in the church in Wittenberg, you can see a figure preaching it's Luther. And on the left-hand side is a group of people that includes some of the reformers, like Melanchthon, Luther's wife, 
and his four children, three of whom died before he did, by the way. Christ is in the middle. And what Luther's doing is pointing to Christ on the cross because Luther famously said, if you want to understand the gospel, you cannot understand it unless you start with the wounds of Christ. So Cranach is trying to uh, put flesh on, uh, in painterly fashion, what Christ had come to die, bear our sins on the cross. So in these two paintings, you have, by both believers, reference to the deity of Christ and the death of Christ, which Paul alludes to uh, in Philippians 2. And the last image is by um, a German painter. I think this is in the National Gallery uh, 2. It's Caspar David Friedrich. Might not be able to say this clearly. And painters disagree over what they think the symbolism is here. But there's a man in the image just behind the rock there in front of the tree. And um, uh, in the background is the church. And also there's a cross there and his crutches thrown on the on the snow. And what some commentators have said is what what the what's trying to portray here is that in the light of the cross which is proclaimed by the church comes liberation and freedom and spiritual healing, so the crutches are thrown away. Which of course is what Christ does when we come to trust in him and give our lives to him. Let me try and bring this home with two last final illustrations for you from Michael Green, with whom uh, I was involved for many years in student evangelism, who died earlier this year. On his deathbed, I was speaking at a university mission week in Dundee on a Monday night in February, and the phone went. It was Michael. He said, Lindsay, Michael here, I think I'm on the threshold of heaven. I think the Lord's going to take me tomorrow. They told me I have an operation on my heart, only a 10% chance of, of uh, surviving. So he said, I'm phoning up to say, I'm on the threshold of heaven. Thanks for being a heavenly friend. And he said, uh, I'm rejoicing. I'm not fearful. He said, I've got a stack of my books by the side of the bed. I'm giving them to all the doctors and the nurses, telling them to follow Jesus because his is the best way. And I spoke about this at his funeral and told these two stories, which Michael, uh, uh, two stories, one of which Michael told me. He was trying to communicate something of Christ's coming into the world and his death as our substitute in our place. And he went to the Philippines and was invited to speak in a prison there to all these desolate and destitute prisoners who had really dirty rags on. And he thought, how can I communicate something of God's grace and God's favor in the salvation offered through Christ on the cross to these destitute prisoners? He was wearing a white uh, a gown which Anglican vicars wear, what's, uh, not a surplus, I think they call it. And uh, these uh, prisoners were in a destitute state. He thought, then he suddenly realized what, what he could do. He called one of the prisoners up to him, to the front of the gathering in the prison. He said, please take your shirt off. The man took his shirt off, and as he took it off, Michael Green took his pristine white surplus off, and put it on the man and said, when Christ died on the cross... When we trust in him, his righteousness is imputed or transferred to us. And he put it on the man. And he said, our unrighteousness is transferred to him. And he took the man's dirty clothes and put it on himself. He said, that's the transaction which occurred in the death of Christ. And the whole place went wild because all the prisoners understood. Somebody cares for me, loves me, and there's a God in heaven who sent his son 
to deal with my sin so that I might experience salvation. Well, that's what Paul hints at here in the wonder of the work of Christ. And a major reason why we lose our joy is because when somebody wounds us in a congregation or in society or the family, we can very easily shift our focus away from Christ. What Paul says is, your joy is sourced by or affirmed by the community of God's people. It's strengthened by trusting in God's sovereignty, but its roots are in the wonder of Christ's incarnation, his death, and his resurrection. And that's where our hope and our joy comes from. The key is to continue to persevere in proclaiming that and living in the light of it all our days. And it may be that uh, things happen slowly. We see few people becoming believers. I just read last week of um, William Carey, who went to India in the 1880s. It was seven and a half years before he saw anybody converted. Nothing for seven and a half years. Then another 13 years, he was building up a publishing house, and the house was burnt down. Desolate. But he continued on, and God used him. And the challenge for us is to persevere in the midst of the difficulties that come our way. Last story, last year we had a Welsh leadership forum, and a guy came called Ajit Fernando from Sri Lanka. And he talked about the importance of persevering in understanding these truths. The comfort that comes from God's people, the sovereignty of God and his goodness and providence, and the grace of God in the death and the resurrection of Jesus. And the hope that comes from that, for me to live as Christ, to die as gain. And he, he talked of a missionary who had worked in the South Pacific for over 30 years amongst a tribal group of headhunters. They saw nobody converted in 30 years. No church, no small group, no home group, nothing, okay? Nothing at all uh, in, the, in the culture. Then he died without leaving any apparent fruit behind him. A young missionary came, and after two years, revival broke out. And the young missionary knew it was nothing to do with him because he couldn't even speak the language. So he went to the chief of the tribe, these headhunters previously, and said, you had this godly missionary here for 30 years. None of you became believers. I've only been two years here, and revival has broken out. How do you explain it? And they said, well, when this godly missionary was here, many times he told us, to trust in God's goodness, and that as believers face death and eternity, they can do so without fear, because for me to live is Christ, to die is gain. He said that was his motto. So we waited to see if it was true. And when he died, we saw that he died with hope, with joy, and without fear. We knew it was true, so then we all believed but he never saw it. That would be some of Paul's experience, be some of your experience, as you seek to bear witness to Christ and live for him before the watching world. So make sure that your joy is secure by turning away from bitterness, by rejoicing in the community of God's people, by trusting in God's sovereignty, and by rejoicing in the Lord Jesus Christ and his work, his death and his resurrection the source of our hope and security. Amen.